All right. Well, let, let's welcome you back. And, and the last section, I kind of finished a little bit early because there's actually, but we were going long, so I wanted, to, I wanted to cut it and give you guys a break here as well. But what I want to do after each one of these topics is kind of say, why does it matter? Okay. Um, so uh, the New Jerusalem is filled with descriptions that the city is indeed a temple, right? All right. But the question now becomes, well, well, why does it matter? Okay. All right. So let me kind of finish up where we were with the last time, and then we're going to go to the next topic about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. All right. So the eschatological temple presence of God, the, an eschatological big word just means the end times temple presence of God, has come in Christ, right? We've looked at that. Continues to the people of God. We looked at that. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 6, 2 Corinthians 6, etc. Um, and it continues to expand throughout the earth and then climaxes in the New Jerusalem. Okay? Now, if you remember... Leviticus 26, I will be their God, they'll be my people, and I'll walk among them, referencing Eden. Ezekiel then picks up that language and says, when God restores the temple, it will be fulfillment of Leviticus, I'll be their God, they'll be my people, and I'll walk among them. Paul, here's the key, Paul quotes that verse in 2 Corinthians 6 and says it's about us. I will be their God, and they'll be my people, and I'll walk among them. Revelation then quotes that, Revelation 21, and says, ultimately fulfilled in the New Jerusalem. So the temple presence of God, or in other words, right, it's not a building, because a building limits God's presence to one place and to one person. That's why we have these verses in Acts 7, Acts 17, and, and, and in 1 Kings, where it says, who can build a house for me? God doesn't dwell in buildings made by human hands. He only chooses to temporarily, but that's not the fulfillment. If anyone wants to rebuild a temple these days, like that's not going to work, because guess what? God's presence is already all over the world in the, heart, in the hearts of believers. All right, but now let's ask the question, why does it matter? And here's the, first, here's the two keys. The first one is holiness. That's the first fill in the blank. Is to be the defining feature of God's people. All right, and the second one is the people of God have a mission, and that is taking God's presence to the world. Okay. Now, we can agree with these two, right? No one's gonna, I don't think anyone's going to argue with these two points, regardless of what our theology of the temple is. You could say, Rob, you made a great case, but I don't care. I still think there's going to be a temple rebuilt in Jerusalem as a sign that's going to happen imminently before Jesus. Okay. My point would be that these two points are essential to the church, and they're grounded in the theology of the temple. <clears throat> If I am the temple presence of God, and so are you because God dwells in us, then guess what? We ought to be holy. Right? Because only holiness can enter God's presence. And if God's presence, right? Holiness is to be a defining characteristic of God's people. And by the way, that's not just Leviticus 17. That's 1 Peter chapter 1. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Therefore, what sort of people ought we to be? All right. Secondly, we have a mission, and that is to take God's presence to the world. So remember what I said at the very beginning, that Eden was a temple that God was going to dwell in, and then the key element of the temple was, was the image that God makes, and then the image bearer makes God known to the rest of the people. Hey, this is what God looks like. This is what God's like. Adam and Eve were on a mission, and that mission was to make God known. That's what it means to be made in God's image. To be made in God's image means to reflect God's glory to creation. I would even say it this way, by the way. To reflect, to, to be made in God's image, to, to be human 
is to bear God's image. To be a Christian is to be the most human thing we can do. The more I grow as a Christian, the more human I'm becoming. To live unchristian is to be unhuman. Because to be human means to make God known and reflect God's glory. Right? Now, if we had time, we would look at the Gospel of John, because this is the whole point of the Gospel of John. Right? No one's ever seen God, John 1.18 says, but God the one and only, who's at the Father's side, has made him known. Jesus is God made known. In John 14, he says, look, I'm going to leave, but it's for your good that I go. You know, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And, like, and Jesus says, and you know the way where I'm going. And they're like, Lord, we don't even know where you're going. How do we know the way? And he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. And he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Right? I am God's presence. If you see, right? Now, note this, by the way, and this goes back to number one and number two. Paul says, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. Right? We're supposed to do the mission and the ministry of Jesus. And, they care, and that ministry is what? To make God known. The reason why we love everybody is because God's love. And when we love, we're reflecting God. Even our enemies, to, even to our enemies, and we're making God known. Right? When we're patient, when we're kind, when we're just, when we're true, when we're noble, when we're all those things, we are dwelling in the presence of God in holiness and thereby making God known. That's why I said at the beginning, look, I can make this theological argument that my view of the end times is right and yours is wrong, but who cares about all that? What really matters is the ethic of God's people and the mission of God's people. I think that ethic and that mission is grounded in a theology of the temple that is eschatological because Jesus was the temple presence of God and thus the eschaton began in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, when Jesus said, here I am. Make sense? All right. Now let's, let's continue on them. The next point then is that the New Testament teaches that there are two ages or two kingdoms. And I was kind of going to leave this off because it kind of gets, but, but it really is kind of foundational to understanding eschatology in the New Testament, okay? Um, and what we tend to do, all right, and if we had time, we'd go on a philosophical discussion about Epicureanism and Neoplatonism and then the Enlightenment philosophy and how Western thinking has actually been influenced by secular thinking, okay? We think God's up there and we're down here. Heaven is spiritual, earth is physical, right? This is the modern, modern thinking. Science knows facts, religion is faith right? Religion is spiritual, science is physical. Right? And we make this secular, sacred dichotomy or, 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 or distinction, right? One's spiritual, one's physical, one's real, one's not, one's knowable, one's unknowable, one you have faith, you have facts and science and observation, the other one you have faith. We've made, our, our goal is to die and go up there, even though God said, pray then this way, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Right? The, the rapture passage that, that David took you to a little bit earlier was what, what, what was God coming back to the earth and us escorting him back. It's not us going up there, folks. Maybe when we die now, our soul... Or, but it's about... And the, the, I saw the holy city of the New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven to the earth. Okay? It's about this recreation, restoration of God's presence there. Another way of saying would be if... if 
God simply said, well, you know, I created you guys to live on this earth. You know, and then Adam and Eve, they ate the fruit. They, they messed up big time. So you know what? I'm just going to scrap all this stuff and we're just going to go to heaven someday. Then the devil won. The devil destroyed God's creation and got God to wipe it all away. No, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Right? You are a new creation. It's this recreation. It's the restoration of God's creation. Right? So the way of looking at this biblically then would be in this, in this notion of um, two ages. Or, or, yes, let's see. So, maybe this is a little off topic, but That's how right. do you interpret um, when John says in Revelation, um, I saw heaven and earth uh, pass away? Yeah. Uh, all right. So what he's seeing pass away. Well, let's go about five more minutes in, and then I'll answer because I think I think two or three more slides. I'm going to answer the question. The question, if you're listening online, was what do we think when it's, John says, "I saw heaven and earth pass away." All right. Uh, let's let's look at that. All right. So the New Testament teaches that there are two ages or kingdoms. All right. There is the present age, which which corresponds to the kingdom of this world. Okay. There's the present age, which corresponds to the kingdom of this world. Okay. Paul refers to the present age in Galatians 1 as the present evil age. Right? I think it's Galatians 1 verse 4. All right. The second one is, there's the age to come, which corresponds to the kingdom of God. Okay. Now you have to remember, this is Jewish thinking, G Jewish language. When Jesus and Paul and the, the New Testament writers walk into the world, they're kind of stuck with the language of way of referring to things. Before Jesus... The age to come was future, right? So they would refer to the present age as the one that we're in now. And then the one when God brings his kingdom, that would be the age to come. But I've argued that Jesus' coming was the bringing of the kingdom of God. Right? And that means the age to come is now present. And, but the language didn't change. They still call it the age to come, even though it's now. And the present age still refers to the kingdom of this world. And so we have this overlapping, right? It's often referred to as the already not yet, if you've ever heard that, that expression. That the kingdom of God is already here, right? Because God dwells within us. That's the temple of God. Yet the New Jerusalem has not yet here yet, right? The New, the New Jerusalem hasn't fully come. So, but in the meantime, we have this confusing language and it adds to our confusion. All right. So here we go. The age to come has arrived and also refers to the present. Right? That's the next point on your outline. The age to come has arrived and it already refers to the present. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, Paul says, they were written, referring to the Old Testament, for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages have come. See? Paul's like, he's referring to the Old Testament saying, look, these things in the Old Testament were written for our instruction and it's upon us that the end of the ages have come. So we call this the already, not yet. That's the next fill in the blank. All right. We call this the already and the not yet. All right. Now, here's the, here's the thing. How do we distinguish between these two kingdoms? And the simplest way I would put it is this. The best way to distinguish between the two kingdoms is to think in terms of the things that last. The things that last are part of the kingdom of God or the age to come. The things that don't last, right, are part of this world, right? Remember 1 John 2, verse 17, the world and its desires is passing away.
but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Right? So what's passing away? The world and its desires. So there's your question. When John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first time and the first earth passed away, well, what's happening is the, the things of the earth that don't last eternally, sin, decay, death, violence, right? All that's done, okay? Um, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. So it's the, uh, think of it this way. The body that we have now is part of the present age. It's going to get sick, and it does get sick, and it dies, right? But at the same time, this body is also going to be resurrected, isn't it? And the best way to know that is Jesus' resurrection. The body that died is the body that rose. So the, the, the part of this world, of the death and the decay, etc., that passes away. But then it's resurrected, restored, redeemed, whatever language you, you want to use there. Right? Uh, and it becomes eternal, in this eternal glorified way. So if that's the case, then why is heaven passing away too? Uh, because heaven, it, or, the idea now is that they become one. Right. I saw heaven and earth pass away would refer to the skies and the places of the birds and things of that nature. Right? The creation, the old creation passed away. And you see this in Romans 8. And the new creation is coming about. And, and now, ultimately, heaven is the place where God dwells. That's coming down to the earth. But you can also think of heavens in terms of the sky and uh, things, things of that nature. Right? So when you see First Peter say that the world will be destroyed by fire, that's judgment, purification. It doesn't mean it's, like it's going to be incinerated and gone. It means it's going to be judged and purified. Right? Um, and, and restored and redeemed. Okay. So, all right, Galatians 1 4 uh, the, the, uh, is uh, the present evil age there. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4 4, in whose case the God of this age, right? Most of your, many of your translations says the God of this world, but the Greek says aeon, it's age. The God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Right? Satan's the God of the present world. Jesus is the King of kings, Lord of lords of the age to come that will ultimately overtake. The kings of this world. Okay. Uh, now, all right, so here we go. Let's, uh, now, the present age or kingdom of this world is also one of apparent prosperity, peace, and safety. It comes through power, military prowess. It comes through, you know, stepping on the other guy, whatever you might think. All right. The age to come or the kingdom of God is that which, is, which the Lord is building. And it comes through suffering, persecution, and tribulation, i.e., humility and love. Okay. Now, if we could spend the rest of the night here on this, on this point, uh, making, sh- making sure we really got this, I think we'd be doing really well. Because here's the thing, and that's this. The way God's kingdom works, you may have heard of the phrase, the upside-down nature of the kingdom. The way the kingdom of God works is through love. When did Jesus become the king of kings? On the cross. Right? But what was the cross exemplifying? Love. You saved others, now save yourself. If he saves himself, he condemns them all. It's love that kept Christ on the cross. Right? Jesus tells the disciples, look, you know, the kings of the Gentiles, they lord over those in authority, but not so with you. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. If I am your, your Lord, and yet I'm washing your feet, what does that mean for you? The essence of the kingdom of God is love and patience and kindness and gentleness, right? The way the world works is, if you want the promotion, you've got to tell your boss how great you are, maybe how bad the other guy is, right? 
You get ahead at somebody else's expense. And Jesus' answer is no. If anyone stops you on the right cheek, give him the other, turn him the other one also. If anyone wants to see you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. If they want to go, force you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to the one who asks of you. They have to understand, by the way, give to the one who asks of you in the first century world doesn't make any sense. In the first century world, you give only so they give you something back. It's, it's debt and obligation. I gave you something, Valerie. Now you owe me. I invited you to dinner, Stephen. Now you have to invite me back. That's just the way it works. I'm not going to invite you know, the poor person over there because they can't afford to invite me back. It does me no good to get ahead in this world to invite the poor because they can't, they can't give me any honor because they're dishonorable. Hey, look, all these poor people are following me. Look how great I am. No, you don't look very good at all. Humility in the first century world was not a virtue. Humility is something you had because you don't have honor. And so the upside-down nature of the kingdom, right? and this is what it means to be Christian, right? and this is the, this is the, 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 the tangle that we get into in the world. right? We, we get ahead, we lie, and we step on people, and we cheat, and we're, and, 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 and we're tempted this way, but we're not, uh, uh, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lie here, I'm going to cheat there, I'm going to say this there, I'm going to make that guy look bad. And Jesus is like, no, no, that's not the way my kingdom works. Like, but Jesus, if I trust your kingdom, I won't get the promotion. And he's like, look, you can't serve God and mammon. So it's this tension. Now, note, by the way, also, that the first option, the present kingdom, is what Satan was offering Jesus. I'll, offer, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world, and you won't have to suffer. You won't have to die. Just bow down before me, and I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus says, no, the kingdom of God comes through suffering, persecution, tribulation, humility, and love. All right. So I have a, a seminar that I've done on the book of Revelation. I've got a book here that I mentioned to Sarah called Follow the Lamb. It's a guide on how to read, understand, and apply the book of Revelation. And I've done seminars around the country on, 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 the, on, on how to understand the book of Revelation. And usually about, you know, maybe halfway through the seminar, I'll say, okay, look, we're going to look at the story in the book of Revelation now. Okay? And I believe Revelation is a story. Okay? Uh, and the story, it really starts in chapter 4. There's, there's two stories. Chapters 1 through 3 is one of the stories. Right. Chapter 4 and following is the second story. Okay. It starts with John uh, being taken up into God's throne and, and seeing God. There's a lamb uh, takes the book and then he opens the book. And, all right. and I said, and here's the thing about the story in the book of Revelation. It's a love story. And people go, you know, oh, come on, silly. Rob, I read the book of Revelation and there's nothing loving in it. It's about wrath. Right? It's about trumpets being blown and plagues happening and boils upon people, right? And locusts killing people when they can't kill, they can only torment for five months, and people cry, oh God, save me. It's, it's, it's about wrath and darkness and destruction and despair. Folks, the Bible is a love story, right? From Genesis through Revelation, it's a story about God's love. You know what, Adam and Eve, I want to create you and put you in my garden, and you're going to be in my presence, right? And you, you, you simply obey me and I'll be your God and you'll be my people. This is going to be great. Oh, and then we sin and, and, God, and God expels us from the garden. But God didn't leave us. God's that prodigal God that when the son or daughter comes home, what does he do? He runs out to meet them. Right? It's the story about God, a God of love. And that God of love is exemplified by the fact that we can come back to his garden because he died on the cross for us. Right? That's a love story. He rose from the dead and defeated because of love. So why would we expect the book of Revelation to be something different? How does the kingdom of God come? Jesus has shown us by dying. 
Church history, by the way, tells us that the kingdom of God flourishes when Christians are killed. Just look at church history. When has the church grown the most? When it suffered. Persecution. Tertullian says, around the year 200, he said, the blood of the saints is the seed of the church. Right? You kill Christians and more Christians grow. All right. This is the nature of the kingdom. All right? So again, we can dwell on this point, and I'm, and I'm dwelling on this because this is the kingdom ethic. What is our mission? Our mission is to grow God's kingdom, and it doesn't grow by power. It doesn't grow by violence. It doesn't grow by the sword. It grows by love and dying. And it think, you, you think that's not going to work. If we die, we're dead, and it's over with. No, there'll just be more to replace us. And so if we had time, we, we would spend some time on the book of Revelation there. And by the way, that, uh, my, my seminar is on YouTube. If you look up Rob Darrell and follow the Lamb, you, you can watch that, that, that presentation there and I'll walk you through the book of Revelation uh, and discuss that. Okay, let's move forward now. Here we go. Mark 8, 34-38. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes... To, t- to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and for the Gospels will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world, that's the kingdom of the world, which is passing away, and forfeit his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? And, what, uh, and uh, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in glory with the Father and his holy angels. Okay. It's this upside-down nature of the kingdom. Right? I think one of the most significant passages in Scripture is Matthew 6, right? Uh, 18 through 30, I think it's 35, all right? And it's, you can't serve God and mammon. Why do you worry about food? Look at the birds of the air. Why do you worry about clothes? Look at the lilies of the field. If God so raised the grass of the field, will he not care for you, O men of little faith? Why do you worry about what you shall eat, what you shall drink, and what you shall put on? Seek first his kingdom. That's the one that lasts forever. And his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. But it's not attained through power and, 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 and anger. So what lasts forever? Love lasts forever. So we start reflecting. If we are the temple of God and the ultimate temple of God is the New Jerusalem, let's start acting like it now. Right? What, what we're going to be like for eternity, we begin to be like now as the Spirit, of course, empowers us. Okay, questions on that? More comments? All right, I'm going to stop this one.